0: now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show.
1: And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And uh, what a great day it is to uh, take a look at what is happening with the Republican Party right now, and the struggle for the presidential nomination, and the struggle for the party's future. CPAC, which has normally been uh, stage one, uh, the center of attention, uh, the actually, not just stage one, but an entire three-ring circus. Well, not so much this year, it's a one-ring circus, uh, and and uh, all of those rings have to do with uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, There's also his pal from Brazil, the former president, somewhat disgraced former president because his supporters were involved with sacking the Brazilian House of Congress, the Brazilian executive mansion, and the Brazilian court building. They did hit all three. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is going to be speaking at CPAC. So what is going on and why is it that with this going on, there are powerful conservatives like Ted Cruz, who has decided not to run for president. He's going to go instead and concentrate on running for re-election to the U.S. Senate. But um, uh, today, Ted Cruz is in a major verbal battle with the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland. We'll play you some of those highlights because, look, the, the one thing about Ted Cruz – is he can be very formidable in confrontation. That's why a lot of people were so disappointed that he didn't do better in the debates in 2016, when you may remember he was running against uh, one uh, Donald J. Trump and not so successfully. Uh, We will also be speaking with Elon Bremer, on the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war, and we are going from there. And uh, also, what exactly is going on in Israel, where they just had some police violence, not against Palestinians, but against Israeli Jews, who were protesting about the attempts at judicial reform by the Netanyahu administration which seems to be coming apart at the seams having a a difficult time we will get to that and get to a difficult time in Chicago for Lori Lightfoot remember Lori Lightfoot uh, elected she won all 50 wards of the city she won every section of the city last time four years ago when she got elected and she was very proudly the first black lesbian mayor of The city of Chicago, well, no longer. She didn't even clear the primary. She finished a very distant third. And the big issue, the big issue, crime and policing. And we will get to that. And we'll also get to the funny behavior of American consumers. Uh, Peter Coy has written a column about how despite inflation and despite the high prices that people are asked to pay for just about everything, uh americans are spending like crazy why exactly is that going on and then again who is coming to cpac and who is not and why is it that uh, that ron desantis has decided to make war not on his fellow candidates for president And he looks more and more like he will be a candidate for president. He's just released uh, a brand-new book uh, about his life and about his record in Florida and putting up Florida as a model for the rest of the country. But aside from that, he's uh, making war on Disney. He has a powerful piece today why I stood up to Disney with a picture of the Magic Kingdom, not a picture of Ron DeSantis that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. We will get to that as well on the Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. Uh, today, Merrick Garland stood up uh, before, or actually sat down before a Senate committee and um uh, He was talking about the two separate special counsels, one who is looking after President Trump and his problem with uh, classified documents and his problem with a deep involvement with the January 6th riots that uh, sacked our Capitol building. And uh, he's also answering questions about uh, abortion and more. There was a particular concern uh, with Ted Cruz on the part of Ted Cruz, who just was a bulldog going after Merrick Garland. The concern about Ted Cruz was efforts to make sure that justices were uh, actually protected after the uh, all controversy emerged after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And uh, this is uh, Senator Cruz. Uh, This is a tape from NBC. Just happened moments ago. Senator Cruz shouting at the DOJ leader, the Attorney General of the United States, for sitting on his hands rather than doing more to protect the justices of the Supreme Court. Listen.
0: And the Department of Justice under this president was perfectly happy to refuse to enforce the law and allow threats of violence. And as you know, those threats finally materialized with Nicholas Roski, a 26-year-old man from California who traveled across the country, was arrested outside the home of Justice Kavanaugh, armed with a handgun, a knife, and burglary tools, and he said he came there to kill Justice Kavanaugh because he was enraged by the leaked opinion. Now, of course, you're prosecuting that individual for attempted murder, but did you bring even a single case? To enforce this law, or does the Department of Justice decide this law doesn't apply if it's harassing justices for an opinion we don't like?
2: When the Dobbs uh, draft was leaked, I did something no Attorney General in the history of the Department had ever done before. For the first time in history, I ordered United States Marshals 24-7 to defend every uh, Residents of every justice. General Garland
0: is a judge. You're familiar with asking counsel I to answer and, a question. I am. Ans- As the Department of Justice enforced this statute, have you brought a single case against any of these protesters threatening the judgment? justices under 18 usc section 1507 you brought even one
2: senator you asked me whether i sat on my hands and quite the opposite i sent hey, let, 70 united states marshall try again defa- let Have me- you,
0: has the department of justice brought even a single case under this statute so yes no question it's not a g- give a speech on the other things you did
2: the job of the united states marshals is to defend the lives so of the answer the ju- is no is to defend the lives of the justices and that's their number one priority. They have. Full- Why are
0: you unwilling to say no? The answer is no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. Have you brought a case under this statute? Yes or no? As
2: far as I know, we haven't. And what we have done is defended to the lies of the justices with so over 70 you decide, U.S. marshals. So
0: how do you decide? which criminal statutes the the DOJ enforces and which one it doesn't?
2: The United States marshals know that they have full. Okay, you,
0: I recognize you want to give a separate speech. No, I don't want how to. How sp- do you? De-
1: uh yes senator cruz can be fairly aggressive and fairly effective Uh, look i am not sure that this is an issue that is going to bring down uh either the biden administration or the attorney general or the department of justice but uh it certainly will advance uh senator cruz who is not one of those people who is speaking at cpac uh who's also not one of those people speaking at cpac ron DeSantis. Why has he been fading recently in some of the polling about the presidential campaign? Uh, we will get to that and we will get to uh, much more uh, about the economy, the state of our politics and world affairs. Where Will we go another full year of war in Ukraine with uh, the U.S. government? providing the same kind of generous support we have provided for the Ukrainians. That and much more coming
0: up on the Medved Show. Your outlet for outrage.
3: I'm not going to take this anymore. The Michael
0: Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's (laughs) 1-800-955-1776.
1: And on The Michael Medved Show, the grilling of Attorney General Merrick Garland continues with the Senate Judiciary Committee. What's fascinating about this is that it was supposed to be the House that was going to be very, very tough on Biden and members of the Biden administration because that's the one where the Republicans took over. You may remember that the Democrats actually gained in the U.S. Senate. They now actually control the Senate, not through Hamel Harris's tie-breaking vote but they gain because they have one more vote because they knocked off basically Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania and of course they don't really have that vote active right now because John Fetterman's in the hospital which is a different story and it is very unclear whether he will serve out his six-year term but we will see about all of that but the the point being that this is a Democrat controlled committee. And yet, boy, the NBC News reports Attorney General Merrick Arlen's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday grew heated when Republican lawmakers grilled him on the prosecution of protesters on both sides of the abortion fight. The Republican ire was focused on two fronts that the Department of Justice had not changed as charged a single protester under a statute that makes it a crime to protest outside a Supreme Court justice's home. And that separately a Pennsylvania anti-abortion demonstrator had been charged under federal law. Then there was also this, you may remember that uh, it was months ago that the uh, Republicans began targeting the DOJ about, uh taking complaints from school boards uh and and saying that there was a problem with school boards being endangered in this country because of parents protesting against the school boards and uh the idea that they were somehow claiming that parents were the equivalent of terrorists or were comprising a danger to the duly elected members of school boards uh was something that Merrick Garland uh, did not acknowledge, and he did not believe that that was actually what he had done, despite the fact that he had written a letter and sent a letter out to uh, various school boards, inviting them to invoke the Justice Department to try to protect them from angry parents. Uh, so speaking of angry, Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, uh, he was uh, wanted to go back to that golden oldie, and uh, did so in his normal bravura style. This is clip 19.
0: Didn't you understand the chilling effect that it would have to parents when you issued uh, your directive? When you directed your criminal divisions and your counterterrorism divisions to uh, to investigate parents who
2: are angry at school boards and administrators during COVID? So, Senator, if you just give me a moment to put the full context. I did not do that. I did not issue any memorandum directing the investigation of parents who were concerned about their children. Quite to the contrary, the memorandum that you're talking about says at the very beginning of the memorandum, And vigorous public debate is protected by the First Amendment. And the kind of concerns that you're talking about, uh, as expressed by parents, are, of course, completely protected. The memorandum was aimed at violence and threats of violence against a whole host of school personnel. It was not aimed at parents making complaints to their school board. Uh,
1: Okay, Uh, that um, (laughs) does not uh, actually settle this this matter Uh, and it does not appear that there has been any Justice Department action against parents who complain before school boards but that doesn't uh, prevent the the uh, Senate from going over Merrick Garland uh, with a certain amount of gusto and speaking of a certain amount of gusto um, the CPAC is opening up and Normally, it's a four-day festival of, well, again, I've, I was trying to count how many CPACs I've been to, and I think it's nine. It's It's been a lot of them. And uh, one of my most memorable professional experiences ever uh, occurred at uh, one particular CPAC where Al Franken, to show you how long ago it was, it was before he was elected to the U.S. Senate. He was an, another talk show host. And Al Franken uh I, who i've known for years and years and years going back to hollywood days um i i'd seen al with a booth set up at cpac and i was about to go on the air he was going off the air so i said hey, why don't you come over and um you can uh, we can have a little dialogue we'll get get into it al and get into it on the air and he said sure and it's an aisle it's an aisle with different shows set up, and and, uh, there are different tables set up and microphones and things like that, and people wandering around and sometimes stopping here and listening there, and I thought Al Franken on Michael Medved, this would be, I'll tell you exactly which election this was. This was the election of 2004. That's how long ago it was. So uh, Franken comes over and sits down with me, and we start arguing about uh, John Kerry, And he was, uh, uh, Al Franken was a very big supporter of John Kerry. I was a very big supporter of President George W. Bush. And um, uh, Al Franken uh, uh, talks very heatedly against a guest I had just had on who had served with Kerry in Vietnam and had real questions about the fact that Kerry was decorated and the possible use of... A political influence to get him so decorated for his Vietnam service when a lot of the people who served alongside him were very critical of Kerry and not just because of his political position or his activities and Vietnam veterans against the war any of that but uh, because they thought he was not that effective as the um, uh, captain uh, as the commander of a swift boat in any event so i was defending the criticism of of who who was running for president at that point and that anything about and i still believe this that with the presidency is such a, a huge responsibility and so much of the success uh or failure of a president involves questions of character i thought it was perfectly legitimate to question uh, John Kerry's character and whether he had exaggerated his service or his service had been fully honorable that sort of thing in any event Franken uh blew up and when I say blew up he I well this is live radio and this had never happened to me before yes I've been interrupted by parrots a couple of days ago and we were in Mexico back we got back last night after midnight but uh, glad to be here So I'll finish that story of CPAC later, because first we have uh, Elon Berman joining us on the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war, on the Iran deal, Iran being 12 days away from a nuclear bomb, the U.S. Department of Defense says, and what's going on in Israel and the West Bank, that and more coming up with Elon Berman.
0: The Michael Medved Show. With all due respect, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. This is The Michael Medved Show.
1: And on The Michael Medved Show, it is a one-year anniversary, just a few days extra, uh, of the Ukraine war, the war that began with the unprovoked invasion of a sovereign nation by the newly resurgent Russian Empire is it really we will get to that also the idea that we are 12 days away from a nuclear weapon for Iran according to a top US Defense Department official Uh, and plus uh, what is exactly going on with Israel with uh, now not just massive demonstrations uh, involving israeli citizens a part of israel's jewish majority who are demonstrating against the current government but a um, a nasty confrontation with police violently cracking down on a protest in israel uh to speak about all of that ilan Berman, who knows something about iran israel russia ukraine and more he is the senior vice president of the american foreign policy council on a columnist for newsweek and a frequent guest i'm proud to say of this show ilan first of all um this is a one-year anniversary do you think we will be celebrating a two-year anniversary with a same indecisive uh, unsettled ongoing and uh unpredictable result that we've had in these first 12 months
3: well i think it's a good question i certainly hope not but um i think uh, all signs are pointing to the fact that the ukraine war uh is shaping up to be a protracted conflict um and it's doing so on a couple of fronts uh first of all it's very clear that the russian strategy has now shifted to an attrition strategy vladimir putin believes that you know through this slow grinding process, he can take small chunks of Ukrainian territory, uh, sort of culminating in in sort of a a decisive uh, piece of Ukrainian territory that will really shift the tide of the battle. He's also, I I think, uh, wagering on the fact that the longer the conflict goes on, the more likely he is to see cracks in the Western alliance and, and cracks in the solidarity that Europe and the United States have displayed so far. Uh, in support of Ukraine so uh, I, I think the, the Kremlin's thinking is that you know uh, what, despite whatever they say publicly you know the situation ain't great but uh, it has the potential to get better you just have to uh, sort of to be all-in and you sort of have to double down on on your bad hand
1: uh, you mentioned in one of your most recent columns that the Ukrainian official estimate of the number of Russians killed in action is hundred and forty six thousand uh, the United Nations say that it's 60,000 Russians who have died. If uh, that smaller number is accurate, that means Russia's lost four times as many forces in one year of war in Ukraine as it did during 10 years of occupation in Afghanistan. Can Russia afford to continue this level of uh, killing and expenditure and depletion of their uh, weapons systems? Can Russia continue to afford going on at that rate indefinitely.
3: Well, not, certainly not at this rate, and, and especially if that if that higher number is is even close to accurate. What you're looking at is something approaching ten times the uh, sort of the human toll of a decade of proxy war uh, against Islamic militants in the in you know from the from the 70s uh, into the 80s. Um, and, and this is not a, by any metric. This is not a sustainable. Uh, bleeding of the Russian armed forces, um, especially since uh, it's very clear that the Russians are having trouble both in terms of uh, sort of mobilizing domestic contingents. And, and you know, here I think it's it's uh, necessary to understand that Vladimir Putin's renewed, redoubled uh, sort of winter offensive, which is now underway, it's been very underwhelming. It's been very underwhelming because, at least so far, the Kremlin hasn't done another call up order for another mobilization order, for for new conscripts. Uh, And it hasn't done that, because uh, the costs of the last one, the one that Vladimir Putin enacted in September, were so high. Somewhere between half a million and a million Russians uh, have left Russia in the last year, most of them leaving uh, after the call-up in September. So I think what Vladimir Putin is is trying to avoid doing uh, is doing another call-up that's going to uh, sort of you know, force the Russians to vote even more than they have already with their feet and to sort of to expand the exodus out of the country. If that's the case, I think that the human uh, sort of situation within Russia becomes really, really difficult, and it becomes uh, even more difficult for him to maintain his hold on power. But I-, I think his plan is, at least for the moment, is to sort of to muddle through. And he doesn't mind throwing convicts, and he doesn't mind throwing mercenaries into this meat grinder. Uh, that is uh, sort of the the military conflict in the east of Ukraine. Whether he can sustain that for a long period of time, um, I'm not sure. And I I think the Ukrainians are wagering that he can't.
1: And what about uh, the Russian wager that uh, the United States and our allies will not maintain our solidarity? We have an election coming up. Uh, There are increasing voices, particularly in the Republican Party, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, that uh, are questioning our commitment to Ukraine, our commitment to this cause of right and the struggle of right and wrong. But uh, the other day, uh, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers of Alabama, who's been pretty supportive of our policy in Ukraine, turned over his question period to, uh, with a uh, State Department official to uh, Andrew Clyde, uh, who has been a a very much a critic of American support for Ukraine Can we maintain in this political atmosphere that we're about to get engulfed in here in the United States? the kind of solidarity that new Ukraine really requires to survive?
3: Well, listen, I, I think that that's probably the key question and uh, you know, I just got back from you know an extended field study in Europe and I was struck by uh, you know, all over Eastern Europe and and Scandinavia, you sort of you have this uh, real clear understanding of the existential nature of the threat. You know, the bear is at the door. Uh, there's an understanding that you know Russian uh, revived Russian imperialism is a threat uh, to all of the te- not just Ukraine, but to all of the territories of the former Soviet Union, and the Russians are are actively trying to revise the uh, post World War II status quo uh, in Europe, and. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think it, it's that argument is far less clear here in the United States for a whole host of reasons, you know, because we're separated from the conflict by a large ocean, because, you know, we haven't spent as much time as the Europeans have studying the contemporary Russian threat, um, whatever it is. But, you know, we are now caught in what, what I find, uh, unfortunately, a very toxic political cycle where um, we, you know. Uh, As a Republican as well, you know, I I have to say, you know, we Republicans have have gotten into this reflexive position where we don't support Ukraine as much as we should just because the Biden administration supports it. And uh, you can have arguments with the Biden administration about what they're providing aid to Ukraine for, but I think we should never lose sight of the fact that what this fight is actually uh, about is it's not just about Ukraine. It's about Russia as an existential danger to the West.
1: And uh, speaking about existential dangers to the West, what about the idea that Iran, according to a top U.S. Defense Department official yesterday, uh, said Iran's about 12 days away for making his first nuclear bomb? Do you credit that? We will get to that in a, in a, in a few moments. Uh, if you can hang on for a few minutes more, sure. uh, we will be right back with Elon Berman. Uh, he is the senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council and a columnist, as I am, for uh, Newsweek, uh, which is a, a great place to get a great variety of opinions. Uh, We'll also talk about uh, Israel and the domestic quarrels in Israel. And how does that impact Israel's ability to protect itself from an Iranian threat? And to respond as necessary, we will be right back with Elon Berman coming up on the Medved Show. Kudos for
0: having the best show on radio. The Michael Medved Show. 1 800 955 1776. The Michael Medved Show.
1: Michael Medved show a few minutes more with uh, Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council, where he is senior vice president. He has just returned from a fact finding uh, tour of uh, Europe and uh, Europe, of course, the center of a uh, devastating uh, war between Ukraine and Russia, where on both sides, the total number of casualties, the total number of people killed is certainly over a hundred thousand and some people would say much much more than that meanwhile the dangers could be incalculable if uh, Iran does in within 12 days according to a US, US fence department official yesterday it can uh, uh, collect enough fissile material to create its first nuclear bomb Uh, what uh, what should could must the United States do about that situation
3: well so I I think it's an interesting question uh, because I I think that timeline at least partially uh, is a bit artificial and and the reason I say that is because we've been hearing estimates like this uh, for a long time and the the Uh, sort of the operative thing to think about when we hear about Iran's nuclear maturity is, first of all, um, it's necessary to understand that uh, what we're looking at is a failure of American policy, right? Um, The Biden administration, when it came into office, um, it spent a lot of political capital and a lot of time talking about the fact that President Trump's maximum pressure against Iran, um, which had you know, curtailed Iranian oil exports, had, had really drawn down Iranian foreign exchange reserves, uh, was a failure, and, and we needed to re-engage. And by re-engaging, we would really bring Iran to the table, and we would slow down their nuclear effort. Um, nothing of the sort has happened, right? We're two years into the Biden administration's reversal of policy, and there's not really any evidence that the Iranians are prepared to, for any sort of meaningful negotiation. And, and so the nuclear clock is ticking, I think, very loudly. Um, the operative question is whether Iran has made a strategic decision to create a nuclear weapon. Um, there's no evidence that uh, it has as of yet, but it's very clear by any metric, uh, and it's been clear for some time, that Iran's ability to do so is progressing, and it's progressing despite the fact that the White House is trying, sort of has tried repeatedly to uh, engage them diplomatically. So. Uh, the operative question here is, what can be done about it? And, you know, I, I think you're beginning to see more and more serious stirrings in places like Jerusalem, um, where Israeli officials are have been talking for a long time about the need to act independently, to act militarily against Iran, to prevent Iran from going nuclear. But I, I think those conversations are, are becoming, um, at least uh, in my mind, more pointed, more marked, Um, because uh, I think the Israelis think the time is running out and I think you know uh, metrics like this really suggest that you know they're probably right
1: okay is it possible time is running out for this new Netanyahu government where apparently a number of his uh, uh, independent right-wing party allies uh, seem to uh, be uh, leaving the cabinet and, uh, and again, he maintains – I think it's he has a three-vote margin in the Knesset right now that is holding this government in power. And uh, there's a great deal of controversy about whether Israel is going to appropriately punish a, uh, a, a thuggish attack that, that occurred on the Palestinian village of Hawara. And uh, the worsening violence going on in the West Bank and all surrounded about this enormously controversial judicial reform that uh, Netanyahu is trying to push through. How does all this relate, uh, the conflict and domestic conflict in Israel, to the potential of uh, some kind of effective uh, either strike or diplomatic movement or some some kind of uh, uh, defensive maneuver against Iran
3: right well no and I, I think you're absolutely right the uh, sort of the domestic scene in Israel is always fractious but I think it's particularly fractious now there's a tremendous amount of political turmoil and I for one would not be surprised if the Netanyahu government falls simply because there the margin to retain power Uh, And the compromises necessary for the coalition to hold together are so great that you're beginning to see some pretty significant social tensions. But in my mind, uh, in foreign policy terms, there's really two big-ticket issues. One is the one you mentioned, the, uh, the, the ability for the government, whatever government, even a caretaker government, to marshal a serious strategic plan to act independently against Iran. And I think if you look at the type of concrete planning, that the last Israeli government did, the uh, Bennett-Lapid uh, unity government, and the planning that the Netanyahu government is doing now, I think there's much more continuity than change. I, I think whether it's the coalition is left or right or centrist, there is an understanding that Iran represents an existential uh, threat to the Jewish state, and there's a willingness to make hard choices, uh, if necessary, to do something about it. The second issue, though, and this is where I think the internal turmoil in Israel uh, really sort of uh, affect Israel's standing uh, negatively is in the context of the Abraham Accords, in the context of this unfolding normalization with the countries of the Gulf and countries like Morocco and North Africa where uh, these countries are building economic and increasingly political and cultural ties to Israel, but in Israel that is racked by internal divisions where the government seems not to be representing the people uh, looks like less of a safe bet for these countries in terms of a strategic partner. And that's probably a perception that Net- Netanyahu should be trying to avoid at all costs.
1: Well, it, what's interesting is he is being condemned again by some of his coalition partners for being uh, too moderate, which was part of the reason <laughs> that he managed to get elected this last time in, in the first place. Uh, if... Um, Uh, going back to the very first question after one year of war in Ukraine do you suspect that we will continue to be talking about a second anniversary of the war uh, and looking forward to ongoing conflict you said a protracted conflict Uh, is it likely to last more than another year and uh, be part very much part of a heated US election
3: as, as a good friend of mine says, uh, I'm not a futurist, I'm a historian, and even I get it wrong half the time. So um, so I wouldn't hazard a guess. I think what we're looking at is, you know, um, there's quite a few people here in Washington that were surprised that the conflict uh, has dragged on already for as long as it has because, you know, we are sort of in this instant gratification culture and we sort of presumed that the conflict was going to be brutish and short. Uh, it's turned out to be brutish for sure, but longer than most people anticipated. And I think you know the length uh, of of what we're looking at is um, how uh, sort of how the correlation of forces look on the battlefield. If the Ukrainians really mount a significant counteroffensive, if the Russian forces are depleted, we could see a Russian fallback position that forces the Kremlin to negotiate sooner rather than later. Um, we don't see that yet. Um, However, if there's flagging support in the United States, if there's flagging support in Europe and the Ukrainians get pushed onto the back foot, uh, I think the conflict is going to drag on for longer rather than last time. Uh,
1: That's Ilan Berman. Uh, We will post some of his most recent commentary on our website at MichaelMedved.com. That means it will also go out with uh, the newsletter that is coming out on Friday, this Friday. Uh, coming up on The Medved Show, we will talk about what's wrong with CPAC. I mean, why is this all of a sudden not the great conservative uh, gathering place, conservative Woodstock people referred to it, though there are very few people nude uh, at any of the nine CPACs that I've been to. In fact, none. But there are lots of people in Revolutionary War outfits dressed up as Minutemen and— Founding fathers and marching around with the uh, the thirteen-star circular Betsy Ross flag, which has become an item of political incorrectness. So why now? Uh, really, Jair Bolsonaro. They've had Viktor Orban. They did a CPAC session that they held from Budapest, Hungary. They've identified with Marie Le Pen, who is part of a. Uh, populist uh, uh, very right-wing uh, also ran opposition party in France uh, is CPAC growing into global significance or becoming more and more relevant only to a fringe of the larger conservative movement we'll talk about that and much more uh, Tim Scott with a speech not quite an announcement of candidacy but worth paying attention to that and more in this greatest nation on god's green
0: earth for special discounts on history shows check out medvidhistorystore.com